Hey, this is Doug Harrison from Fan, and you're listening to NWCZ. Hi, I'm Floyd Little. You're listening to NWCZ Radio. Coming to you from the Man Cave, deep in the heart of the Pacific Northwest, you have entered the Northwest Convergence Zone. Everybody, welcome to the Northwest Convergence Zone Show. Uh, Big D here with you. This is episode number 114 for those who are counting. Awesome. <laughs> I'm here along with Vaxi, the Gimmer, and Double D, and Saint, the Wonder Boy, and Squeeze. All of us back in house again together. Happy, happy, joy, joy. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Two weeks in a row. That's pretty good for summer. I know. Mm-hmm. It's know? almost like it's magic. <laughs> it's, it's a magical summer. <laughs> uh, we opened that up with a group out of Canada who we're going to be talking to this hour, Finn. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with Finn, those guys are, well, A, amazing, and B, they were, in, last year in 2010, their, their CD landed in the top 10 um, of like a lot of magazines across Canada and the U.S. in the independent market. So a lot of people were digging uh, those guys. And just a little heads up, we're working hard to get them down here into Tacoma. Yeah. Hopefully in September, we're going to put together yeah. a bill, put Finn on there. You know what would be really cool is to pull a couple of those bands out of Canada and get them down, like Sun Wizard, yep. something like that. Finn, I know, is in. Finn is in. Talk to the boys. They're excited about it. Cool, man. So uh, what would you guys uh, what do you guys do this uh, soggy, crappy summer slash fall week? Anything? There's a few things I might have done. <laughs> that you can remember? <laughs> <laughs> but it always just kept going back to the bottle. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for that update, you know. That's great. No, it's just, you know, I mean, are we really, are we ever going to have a summer here? I mean, I went to Vegas this week. I had a good time. Uh, took my daughter. She turned 21 back in March. And so she... Uh, That's all you ever do is talk about your vacations. It that's, was, dude. That's all you no. ever talk about. Okay, you well, go to, then I'll go on to something else. Here we go. The this Caribbean, Hawaii. Thin. You go to all over the place. Vegas. Yep. We uh, had a, we had squeeze. A good, okay, let's talk about somebody else. Squeeze, squeeze went to Chicago. Oh, yes, yes. So yes. He, he had a good time. It was a snuggle uh, snuggle love fest with the wife. Just walk around town holding hands. I think so. Hey, did you go to the uh, to the couch, to the Bob Newhart couch? That's, no, look, not yet. <laughs> it's gonna go next year. next year there's a statue downtown it's it's life-size it's a couch about this size the one i'm sitting on and it has bob newhart sitting next to it you know with his pad out and you know because of the bob newhart show obviously and you can actually sit or lay on the couch and it looks like bob's talking to you it's a nice photo op. are we talking about bob newhart or are we talking about uh that's a drinking game ain't it yes bob newhart the bob newhart show his first show, he was uh, he was a psychologist. Oh, okay. Gimmer yeah. doesn't know that. I, I can no. just see in his you, face. You 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 came in when he had the uh, when he had the um, you know the uh, my name's Daryl and this is my other brother. No, Darryl. I got him before <laughs> that. But no, I thought you were talking about uh, the, you know the older dude who had the talk show. You know, uh, who also Bob made, and Doug McKenzie, who also made Jeopardy. You know, and Wheel of Fortune. Oh, oh no, no, yeah. not, Anyways. not that Bob. So and I, I like carry, the, I like carrying over my trivia from my so. Wednesday night shows to Sunday. Does anybody do, have an answer to that? Do this? you go down to rock and roll trivia? Uh, do you ever go down talking about trivia? Do you ever go down there to the New Frontier? It's rock and roll bingo. bingo. It's oh, rock that's and roll it. bingo. Yes, yeah, and yes. How does that work? I've never been. Tell the folks how they it works. just they uh, they bring What's out. What's rock and roll about it? They're spinning music. And uh, you know, is that Bro- Darren Selector? No, it's Brooke. <laughs> oh, Brooke, D- DJ Baby Shams. Oh, so um, local so she- tunes. Yep, and uh, and they just walk around, give you know, give uh, all the patrons bingo cards, 
And With what song titles on them? Or? No, it's just bingo just cards. Bingo cards. Okay. Numbers. You got a yeah. dauber? Uh, no, crayons. So or it's bingo or with rock Beer music caps. played in the background. <laughs> that would be cool. <laughs> that would be great. It's, it's bingo with rock music playing in the background. Yeah, and they got a oh. you know a table prizes. table up there with with all kinds of weird prizes. I was nice. thinking you get we a bingo it. card with different song titles, and then they just randomly spin the music yeah, and whatever, and that's what you dub. Uh, that's what I was thinking would night, be rock and roll bingo. I won a, uh, a sculpture of a zebra coming out of an egg. And that same night, wow. uh, our very own Savage Ernest. Yeah, that night he walked out with a Harry Belafonte, uh, uh, you know, vinyl album. That's this the winner of the night. More yes, appealing. it was Belafonte album. Yep, that's the steal of the night. It was his. Uh, it was his uh, consolation prize too, because he was supposed to like interview him that coming week, and I guess Harry like blew him off. It. <laughs> so it was like, well, at least you got the album, EJ. <laughs> all right. Well, good times all around. Hope everybody's having uh, as good of a summer for Dude, those in the Northwest. It was clear and sunny for Fourth of July. That yeah. equals one day beautiful summer. Yeah. Well, I guess right? we get what, what was that two three days? weeks ago? Hey, now? Growing up here, I've had way more than enough. Wet, ugly, nasty Fourth of July is where you're just sitting there looking at this box of That's fireworks, going, "Lord, why?" No, my favorite is when they always because they they don't ever cancel the the big firework display, yeah. And half the time you're just watching multicolored clouds, yeah. So <laughs> that's always a good time. Well, that would have been cool. It looked like a rainbow of colors, but uh, no. So I know a lot of you are listening in California and all across the country, and I I know everywhere else in the world it's a heat wave. It's like Ethiopia hot. It's totally like baking. So they're like, listen to those bitches winding up in the Northwest. Yeah, know. You know what's even worse, though? We're sitting in here sweating because it's so muggy, but it's yucky outside. Yeah, it's crazy. I don't get that. Um, Something with the construct- let's just take construct- our construction off. of this building. Something went Who funny. Who did that? Who's I think, the contractor? I think there might be a couple like dead bodies up in the <laughs> attic or something. I don't know. Something strange. All right. Well, we hey, we have a great, great show uh, <laughs> planned for you today. Whether it comes off great or not, uh, you'll be the judge of that. <laughs> and the email to bitch about it is gimmer at... Yes. <laughs> Gimmer.com. <laughs> gimmer at biteit.com. No, but speaking of uh, the band that we open up with, Finn, we caught up with those guys. Uh, and, and the funny thing is, at the beginning, you know, where we had the little taglines, and he says, hey, I'm so from Finn, and he says, you're listening to NWCZ. Mm-hmm. I got the funny looks from Voxy. <laughs> Z is how they say Z. They don't say Z in Canada. In Canadia. In Can Canadia. you explain? Is there a reason? Oh, I, I, I have never understand that either. I have Canadian. never understood that. In fact, the first time, one of the first times that I remember, you know, going to Canada and I was listening to one of the classic rock stations, they, the guy comes on and he goes, you're listening to K-Fox, classic rock, A through Z. And I'm like, a through Z. Is that how they say Zeppelin up here? I've heard Zepp. <laughs> right. I'd never heard Zed. But no, that's how they say Z. So huh. that's that's what was going on there. Those goofy Canadians. Those crazy Canadians. You but don't ask them what or why. No. You just let it just go. Just drink the beer and go with the flow. Yep, exactly. Yes. It would seem like it would make sense if they were trying to differentiate between a Z or a B or a C, but do they do it for the other letters that I, rhyme? No, that's the only one. <laughs> NWC Omega. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here we go. This is Finn. name of the track is in your arms and the band is out of vancouver the name of the band is finn and they are on the uh, ripple music label and we have doug harrison uh one of the members of finn with us today doug how are you 
I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, Daryl. Hey, thanks for coming on with us, Doug. We really appreciate it. We're big fans of the band Finn. Um, we really would like to get you guys down here and uh, get you exposed, you know, in the Seattle-Tacoma-Olympia area because I think you would go over – well, I know you would go over real big live. I, we, a lot of people have become fans of the music that we've been playing on NWCZ Radio and uh, get a lot of questions about you guys. Tell us um, – Tell us real quick just about the evolution. I know this is uh, the, the, the CD you have out now. It's been out for about a year. Is Trails Out of Gloom, and it's your fourth CD. Tell us about the evolution, the beginning of Finn, and take bring us up to the current status. Well, um, I guess the evolution begins uh, in 1998 when uh, Sam, and Sam's the, the main guitarist. He and I met in Nelson, this little, little hippie town. In, B- in the southeastern BC, and um, we came to Vancouver with big ideas and huge Tool fans, and we just got ourselves a band together and tried to make the craziest music we could. And, um, and then, al- album after album, we sort of realized that that our approach uh, needed a bit of refining. So uh, we basically worked our way from complete chaos to sort of the the classical song structure verse chorus verse thing we decided that in the end that that actually does work so <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh it's been around for a long time <laughs> now how how about your fans though if from the early days of finn where uh you know you described you were uh you guys are just trying to make great music and stuff and then up you know Album one, two, three, and now four, which this is uh, what I would consider to be uh, quite a masterpiece. It's it's amazing music. Um, it's, it's it's from beginning to end. It's a musical journey for any listener. It's such wonderfully layered sound. How have your fans uh, responded with each step of the band? Um, there's definitely a, a handful of them that grumble a bit as, <laughs> as things evolve. Because I mean. Yeah, we're not one of those bands that that sticks with the same sound for every album and and just makes a career out of it. We just we like to explore and we just go we just go ahead with it sort of regardless of the consequences. So yeah, I mean, I think that I I don't think that we've really lost anyone completely, but maybe we've made a few people sort of cherish those earlier ones a little more. Yeah, I guess it just depends on at what point they came in in the evolution of yeah. the band. Um, and so I, you know, a lot of people like to label music and label the CD and your sound and everything. And I, I've, you know, heard everything from Prague to uh, folk metal to, uh, you know, emotional um, you know, emotional rock or however. They, how, how do you guys feel about a being labeled and B what 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 do you or how do you view your music how how would you uh, describe it to somebody if you were giving saying say they never heard you and you're like hey I'm in a band and they say well what do you sound like oh dear yeah um, <clears throat> well we don't we're fine if people want to label us that's okay it's got to be done <laughs> um, I just try to keep it really general like nowadays I'll say just like dark rock or gloomy rock. Or sometimes I'll throw progressive in there, even though we're not like crazy technical, kind of odd time signature kind of band. But you know, things progress. So yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, if you're not progressing, something you know, you're kind of standing still. I I think. Yeah. Um, now, I, as I was uh, you know perusing through the internet and so forth, I saw a post. Um, it was supposedly by you. Said something about. Um, possibly doing a solo cd yeah um so you must have stumbled across my website that's like under construction right now i don't know i'm just there's a lot of music coming out over the last few months the last year since trails and there's like i basically continued to write music on my own which i'm not really sure if it'll be fan or if it'll be something else yeah, because I think a lot of people, you know, uh, even the, you know, the, the quote, big bands like 
Sting does a solo album or Steve Perry does a solo album or whoever, you know, one of the big bands, the lead singer goes off and does a solo album. Um, a lot of people wonder, you know, how does that come about? Is, and, of course, everyone – First off, thinks oh, there's problems in the band, and then, and then the other is, <laughs> uh, you know, what would possess the lead singer or whoever, whatever member, to go off and do a solo thing? Is it just, is it something like an itch you just got to scratch, or like you said, it's, is it more, it's just music that you're not sure that fits the Finn uh, standard? Hmm. Well, it's more the fact that that um now with the next album that we're working on as a band it is a more collaborative effort in terms of the writing so um in in a democracy things take a lot longer (laughs) and um (laughs) so i've had so i've just happened to be working on that and then as more ideas come i just I'm just working on them because I've got to, right? Like, right. Well, yeah. You could, there. if it's your album, you can. You should pretty much be able to call all the shots. Yeah. So, so we've got like these two parallel albums happening. One is like stuff I've just been working on on my own, and and then there's a collaborative, and we may we may mix and match for the album. It's kind of all up in the air right now. Right. Uh, and what is the what is the process like between? I, I assume it's primarily between you and Sam. Um, h- how does that work? We, do you guys each bring in ideas and then uh, you kind of let let each other take a look at it, or um, you know, and to come up with the Finn sound? Does it go through sort of this process, or do you guys sort of have an idea of a song that comes to mind? And you're like, yeah, that's the Finn sound. Well. I mean, with with trails, it was it was essentially like I wasn't working with Sam at that point, so I wrote all the tunes and then brought people together to record it. So that was like completely different from any of the albums before it. Um, so with with the album before, which was Congenital Fixation, Sam would basically bring in riffs and we would just jam on them, record the the good ideas as they come out, and then. Just a process of refinement over quite a long period. Like it's it's a good couple of years, really, for us to to get an album's worth of material up to snuff. Yeah, well, we're I'm I'm anxiously awaiting to hear uh, you know what you guys come up with next. Let's talk a little bit about you guys are up in Vancouver, and um, you know there a lot of us go up and visit Vancouver or go up to Whistler or whatever. And I don't know how many people actually stop in and check out the music scene. I've been blessed. I've uh, uh, been able to go to a lot of shows up in Vancouver and know some of the venues, but um, to those who are down here in the States or, you know, maybe other parts of of Canada and the U S who are listening to our program. um, A, tell us a little bit about the Vancouver live music scene. How's it going right now? Well, I mean, at the level we're at, we're just, it seems like every time we're playing with different bands that are, uh, could be like any style, like, I guess we end up with a lot of sort of metal-y sounding bands, just because we're kind of dark. But I mean, there's lots of, there's lots of wicked sort of international bands that are coming through, like I, I saw Catatonia a few months ago. And I see they're coming back with uh, with Opeth. Mm. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, but as far as like lo- uh, the local band scene, uh, is it a is it a cohesive unit? Do you guys, uh, you know, all kind? Of, I mean, I know Vancouver's a big city, um, but do you you know play set gigs up together, um, or is it kind of fragmented where everybody's just kind of you know doing their own thing and you kind of run into each other maybe at a show or something? Yeah, yeah, we're not really in on the scene. Like, we there is no sort of dark rock scene that we're honed <laughs> in on, unfortunately. So, yeah, we're we're still still kind of just building our connections around here. Right, right. Well, and then so uh, to follow up on that, uh, let's say um, we get to come up and we're we're coming to a Finn show. Uh, tell us from an audience perspective, uh, what are we seeing? What is a Finn live show like? Well, it seems to change every time. We're still kind of getting our getting our feet live with this new material because it's with trails. It's a lot. So 
sort of mellower and a bit slower tempo than the other stuff. So it's it's interesting to try and pull that off because um, we want people to be moving, and it would be nice if people moshed, but we haven't had that yet, right? So. <laughs> 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 yeah, people you're... bobbing their heads, swinging their hair around. It's right. Like, no one's quite sure. <laughs> they're like they're just are they just standing there watching or i mean are you guys high energy on stage or i mean i know you're you're there's some of your tunes you know lend to uh i think feel, feeling the need to move around and then you also have some you know almost like uh ballad type uh songs yeah totally so then we do put out the energy for the for the higher energy songs and then we kind of break our our setup like a couple of fast ones and a couple of slow ones, and we try and just keep a, a sort of undulation going on so it's not like a complete, like, 20-minute fast set and then 20-minute slow set. <laughs> right. <laughs> Everybody's heading to the bar. What's going on? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, and then I'm just curious. I, I know you, you said you're working on uh, new material and, you know, heading towards uh, uh, probably, you know, working on uh, getting a new CD out and stuff. Uh, when you guys uh, set out um, to start a band and and to eventually you know become Finn and where you're at right now, um, did you have some goals in mind and do you feel like you've achieved them uh, or have they have they changed along the way and uh, what you know what is Finn trying to accomplish and and where are you at on that chart? Well, musically, we were going for something dark and powerful and i think it took us quite a while to sort of um sort of grasp that power and feel it in the music um just because we're we're learning how to write and how to put things together and you're just experimenting really there's no there's no uh sort of book on how to do it um we were we were hoping to like make a living off it really which was has not happened so far. <laughs> well, everybody needs to get out and buy the CD then. Trails Out of Gloom by Finn. Um, you can you can get it uh, off of uh, finnmusic.ca. It's uh, also off of the Ripple uh, Music's website, and I assume it's on iTunes and CD Baby and all that. Correct? Yeah, yeah, it's it's everywhere. So yeah, it's yeah, too hard to find. You can. You can download it for free from about a hundred different places, I think. No, we don't want them to do that. We want them, <laughs> we want them to spend the the ten or twelve bucks and and put it in your pocket because that's uh, that that's what it's all about, right there. You guys working hard, um, just like everybody else. You deserve to uh, to have that money put back in your pocket because I know it's not cheap to go no. through this process of recording, releasing, distributing a CD. It's uh, uh, that whole downloading for free thing. Um, sometimes you know. It's good for a song or two, I think, but bands work hard. They need the, they deserve to get some cash back. Yeah, we do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, real quick, one one last question, um, and then then we're gonna go into a, a another uh, a bit of a track of yours, and then we'll come back and wrap this up. But I, I noticed that you guys had uh, a pretty good opportunity land in your lap, and um, that was to open for uh, Blackfield when they were coming through. And yeah. then it just it just kind of went poof. Yeah, that was that was pretty sucky. Um, yeah, we got invited by the management of Blackfield to uh, to open for them in Vancouver. So I guess the manager was going to come out and scout us out. I guess. And um, so we we're rehearsing like every night for weeks leading up to it, and then I guess a few days before got the bad news that. Um, Stephen Wilson's father had died, the singer of Blackfield. Yeah. So, uh, unfortunately, he had to uh, deal with that for a couple of weeks and then resume the tour um, no. without yeah. returning. So, are they did the, are they not going to reschedule a trip to Vancouver, or you don't know? Um, I don't know. It, like, I haven't heard any any word on that. Well, fingers crossed that they uh, that they do and that you guys open for them because. Um, yeah, that, that was a great opportunity, and I was bummed to see that it didn't uh, quite turn out the way uh, you guys were hoping for. Yeah, yeah, that was wasn't 
kind of an unfortunate event. <laughs> All right. Well, we're talking to Doug Harrison from Finn. Let's go into a little bit of End of the Dream. This is off of their trails out of Gloom CD. This is Finn. That's a little bit of End of the Dream by the band Finn, and uh, you can check them out at finnmusic.ca. You can hear that and all of their tracks in their entirety right here on NWCZ Radio. We enjoy playing them, and we're talking with Doug Harrison. And uh, Doug, before we let you go, I want to I give you the opportunity to tell everybody where they can uh, find you guys online, how they can contact you, or be a, be a part of the fan base. Um, well, you can find us on fanmusic.ca. Um, you can email us at ingrowth at fanmusic.ca. Um, pretty much everything's on that main website there, and you can access through that. You can access our Facebook and our MySpace and all that junk. It's all all linked up. So great, great. Well. Um Again, this is uh, uh, I know your CD has been out for a year and this, but you have had solid reviews of it. And I just want to add my two cents in the fact that it is uh, top to bottom, beginning to end. It's an it's an amazing musical journey that everybody should take, and they will want to go on that journey over and over. I love the layered sound that you guys create, and just the the mood changes and the, the guitar work is amazing. You guys. Uh, really, really did some amazing uh, guitar work in this. And, of course, the vocals and the lyrics are fantastic. And, and I love the mix of the heavy um, and, and then kind of scaling back. Uh, rumor, somebody told me, and I, I just got to ask you if this is true. <laughs> did, you, did you or was it Sam, somebody sat down and wrote most of this using uh, a classical guitar? Yeah. That's, yeah. that's amazing. That's how it all got started. <laughs> that is fantastic, my man. And uh, so good stuff. The The name of the CD, Trails Out of Gloom. The band is Finn. And our guest today has been Doug Harrison. Thank you, Doug. Thanks so much for having me, Daryl. Summer got you down. We've got the cure for you. NWCZ Radio and the Northwest Convergence Zone presents Summer Crush 2. Featuring the Dignitaries. Vallejo. I'm spinning. I can't slow down. The legend of Bigfoot. One, two, three, four. And afraid of figs. She'll spark a fire that soon will fizzle. Had a brainstorm one. August 6th, Louis G's, 5219 Pacific Highway East in Fife, and it's only five bucks at the door. This is an all-ages show, so everybody's invited. 12 and under free, starts at 9 o'clock. It's the Northwest Convergence Zone and NWCZ Radio's Summer Crush. Uh, who's that jokester on that? Uh, really, we can't come up with better talent than that to do an ad? <laughs> come on. Everyone's invited. <laughs> Five bucks at the door. <laughs> I was channeling my Glenn Grant on that one. You know, it's like, I'll smash windows if you come down to this event. Yeah, it, it, you were a little roided up there. I got free pies for everybody. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> no, we, we do want to invite everybody down. That's going to be a fun event. Um, I know Legend of Bigfoot's excited. Voxy, you guys excited to play that? Oh, hell yeah. No, she's not. She's lying. <laughs> it's going to be fun, man. And it's like I said. Screw it, you. Take me off the bill. Four <laughs> bands. We like to do this for the Northwest Convergence Zone and, and the, you know, NWCZ Radio. We like to put a good package together with, uh, you know, bands that we featured on the show, kind of a showcase type thing, and make it affordable. So five bucks. If you have kids 12 and under, bring them along. They're in for free. That's and, economical. Yeah, and I'm telling you, Luke, come early because Louis G's has some great pizza. And um, every time I go down there, I, mm, I, I'm pizza. like, I'm only going to have a few pieces, but, you know, look at me. I want to hit that buffet, <laughs> the lunch buffet. Dude. When yeah, I, but every time I go there, I can usually out eat you. He does, man. I don't know how he. I don't know how he stays. Little people, like man. That. That's what they I do. I, they're they're yeah, strange. I've noticed a lot that, of trips to the bathroom. Out. I notice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, as the male anorexia is on the rise, we should keep our eye on you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'll have an intervention at Louis G's. No, everybody's welcome to come on down to that. In fact, next week we're gonna have. I think all of the bands are gonna check in right. on uh, and tell us what they have planned for that. So. Uh, hope you'll mark your calendar. Tell your friends. It's all ages. That's the first one we've done, and we're hoping for a big crowd. Hey, our next guest on the program is um, a legend in football, and uh, Double D, actually. this I got to tell this story. I know we're running short on time, but we're watching, we're watching the Super Bowl. Was it lat two years ago? Yeah, I think it he was wasn't too. watching. He wasn't. I was. He wasn't. He was talking. There was a whole bunch of guys. We're at, we're at Squeeze's house. We're all watching the game, except for Double D, who's you know off in Birdland somewhere. And they're <laughs> announcing. They're announcing at before the game. They have the 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 latest class for the Hall of Famers, and they're introducing them. And all of a sudden, the announcer says, and you know, and Floyd Little and Double D like whiplashes around. I know that guy. And we're all like. Right, yeah, right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you know Floyd Little, sure, uh-huh. It's like, no, no, really, I used to work for him. I used to work on his carburetor. <laughs> We're like, Floyd Little, like, he's from Denver, dude. You know, he's like, no, 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 he had a Ford dealership up here. And so it's true, you did work for him. Yeah, I worked for him for, I think, seven years. And everybody, when I first started, the, they all said, hey, that's Floyd Little. I'm like, yeah. Who? <laughs> and he's like, Floyd Little. I'm like, yeah, he's the owner of the company. And they're like, no, that's Floyd Little. I'm like... You guys have to explain this to me because I don't get it. Football, little brown pig skin. Such an incredible universe you live in. <laughs> it's, it's amazing, isn't it? So anyway, uh, through Double D. And but now I do know who he is. Yeah, so. we, uh, you know, he, he was. Uh, Which he was rubbing in my face earlier. Yeah, but you didn't know. <laughs> what, what was going on with the rubbing? <laughs> Boxy Wouldn't cream. you like to know? Uh, but Floyd Little, he was up here for quite some time. He still has a has a home up here, and um, he is in the Hall of Fame, and it's very very cool. We've talked to rock and roll Hall of Famers, we've talked to uh, motorsports and the hydroplane Hall yep. of Famer, and now we get Chip to talk to a pro football Hall of Famer. So uh, Floyd Little, everybody, this is pretty cool. Hang on, because he's got some he's got some great stuff to say about the NFL situation going on right now plus what it was like back in the day when when he was coming up and it was like the afl and all that stuff so floyd little before john elway before terrell davis denver had floyd little to broncos faithful little was simply the franchise from 1967 when he became the first number one draft pick in team history to sign until his final game in 1975 nobody did more for their team than number 44 in his career as a running back receiver returner, Little accumulated 12,157 all-purpose yards, more than anyone in the NFL in that span. He did so playing with the least talent, as he had no Pro Bowl players and no future Hall of Famers around him. Yet Little led the AFC in rushing in back-to-back -back seasons, including the entire NFL in 1971 when he ran for 1,133 yards in 14 games. In so doing, the 5'10 Little became the smallest running back to lead the league since World War II. Little's skills did not translate into wins and losses, however. Denver had just two winning seasons under Little's leadership, and he never played in a playoff game. But a franchise that had threatened to leave flourished upon Little's arrival. From less than 19,000 season ticket holders in 1966, Denver's Mile High Stadium has sold all 49,000 seats by Little's final season, before the season even began. Now in Vesco Field at Mile High, Every game since Little retired has been sold out, prompting John Elway to proclaim Floyd Little the greatest Bronco of us all. All right, everybody, on the line with us today, we have uh, the Hall of Famer, 
the man known as the franchise for the Denver Broncos, Floyd Little. Floyd, how are you today, buddy? I'm good. I'm good. It's a great day today in Colorado. It's not raining, and uh, it's about 65 to 70 degrees. Yay! <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, it's a, actually a fairly decent day here in the Northwest as well, which is unusual right now, but uh, we'll take it. Uh, Floyd, first of all, uh, congratulations on getting into the Hall of Fame. That's, a, that's just got to be an incredible, surreal honor. Yeah, it's been a long time coming, and I'm just honored to be with a great class. They consider one of the best classes, if not the best class, in the Hall of Fame with Emmett Smith and uh, Jerry Rice and John Randall and people like that. It's been, it was, it's been great, and I'm glad that I'm a part of that. It has been a long time coming, and I know for uh, a lot of us who have been uh, diehard NFL fans, and I was born in 1965, and I've followed the NFL, my, you know, just grew up with it. I, I grew up in Houston. And um, so for those of us who knew about Floyd Little, watched Floyd Little play, uh, it, it was quite a surprise that it took so long to get Floyd Little in because uh, I remember towards the end of your career, uh, anytime anything was written in the paper or whether it be in a, a magazine, it was always future Hall of Famer Floyd Little. <laughs> I know it's it's amazing, but they didn't say how far in the future they were <laughs> talking about. But yeah, yeah and, and I remember being introduced by Frank Gifford and others like Frank, who are sports commentators at the time, Howard Cosell and the rest of them. They all all talked about me being in the Hall of Fame. They said this guy is in the Hall of Fame, and it took thirty five years. Yeah, I think the, I think the voters for the Hall of Fame got amnesia all of a sudden. I, I I never quite understood that because I mean, and I respect everybody who's made it into the Hall of Fame, but there have been names over the years that have gotten in in front of you that just left us all scratching our head. I, I'm just curious, from your perspective, as you're watching this year in and year out, uh, the votes and the push for certain players to get into the Hall of Fame. Um, you know, were your hopes dwindling or were you, were you getting, uh, you know, depressed or did it give you even more determination to, to get your name out there? Well, I got a little bit depressed after so many years of being denied and deprived. You all, you know, you sit back and say, this is my time. This is not my time. Although I thought it was my time, you know, right after I got out. But because everybody considered me, I ended my career the sixth leading rusher in the history of the game. But, you know, the criteria for the same consideration is you have to play in the Super Bowl, which is not a, a individual accomplishment. It's a team's accomplishment. So one of the things that they look at is how many Super Bowls you played in. That has nothing to do with I played in five Pro Bowls. Exactly, I the league yes. For a number of years. and But it was one of the criteria to get into the Hall of Fame typically has been you have to play in the Super Bowl, which is ridiculous. That is ridiculous because uh, if anybody's familiar with the history of AFL, then going into the, uh, the, the NFL, the team that you played for, because you were drafted in the first round, you were the very first player drafted in the first round by Denver. I believe you were the sixth pick. And you were not surrounded by a cast of, you know, Hall of Famers and Pro Bowlers and so forth, which a lot of a lot of running backs who are in the Hall of Fame had that luxury of these monster dynasty teams that would carry them. You were the franchise. You were the man. I, I, you're absolutely right. I played with 27 quarterbacks and 50 offensive linemen, unlike Emmitt Smith, <laughs> who played with one quarterback, two Hall of Fame linemen, Hall of Fame receiver, Hall of Fame quarterback. I mean, it's it's a big difference playing with you know, 27 quarterbacks over a nine-year period. You know, there's no consistency, consistency, and there's no con continuity. So, it, it it was very challenging for me playing for a team that uh, didn't win a whole lot of games, and to get the recognition and the notoriety that I needed to get into the Hall of Fame. It was very challenging. Right, and that's the and to me that is the most. Uh, I mean, of of an amazing career that you had. That is the the stats that you were able to pile up. Were amazing because every team that you played during your your tenure at Denver came in knowing you were you Floyd Little you were the threat so they were all gunning for you. Well, I mean, you know, a lot of the players that I've gotten to know during the Pro Bowl, they said the only thing they ever had to do was stop me. <laughs> so they had eleven guys to one. They said if Floyd Little don't get a hundred yards, Denver Broncos never win. So the whole team focused on keeping me under a hundred yards, and they, you know. I mean, they tell me, they, they really came after me. I was targeted, 
They zeroed in on me, and I was a guy that uh, had no escort, no blocking. I had to kind of – one of the uh, publicity guys says I made my best runs uh, getting back to the line of scrimmage. I mean, I broke two tackles just to get back to the line of scrimmage. So, and a lot of plays. And, and it was challenging. I, I got to tell you, it was it was challenging, but I played with some real guys who were really determined to help me get to the level that I am today. And they worked hard. They blocked hard. Albeit there were 27 quarterbacks and 50-some-odd offensive linemen during my career. Yeah, that, that, uh, that had to be a, a, a serious challenge. Um, especially when you you know you felt like you've hit you've hit the big time, which obviously you had. Uh, I have some staggering stats that I want to share with people um, about your time at Denver. Well, first of all, uh, somebody that I highly respect, Roger Staubach, once said that you were one of the best players ever of your era, hands down. And I know uh, John Elway has said you're the greatest Bronco of all of them. But in 1966, when you came in. About 19,000 season tickets uh, were sold. But by the time you left, the entire 49,000-seat you know, stadium had been sold out and has been sold out ever since then. So to label you as a franchise tag, which I think might have been one of the first times you know, that label had been used, that's that's no joke. And and how do you how do you feel about that? I mean, you were the, you're the king of Denver. You you owned that city. And uh, and at the same time, a lot of people, because during that time there was, uh, you know, there was a lot of race relation problems and a lot of things going on. Um, and here you are in Denver and you are you're just running the show. How does that feel for for a kid from Connecticut? Well, it feels great. I mean, I was the first first round draft choice ever to sign and save the franchise from moving to Alabama or Chicago. And I went door to door to help generate. Uh, the fans and stimulate the fans from a 19,000 to when I left, they had 76,000 in my life. In fact, my, uh, my name was bantered about, about naming the, the stadium after me. It was, you know, they finally named it mile high stadium, but my name was one of the ones that they were looking at naming the stadium after. So, you know, I made an impact while I was in Denver. I, uh, you know, saved the franchise, thus being named the franchise. And it was my time. It was great for me. And, I've had a chance to go other places, New York, the Jets, uh, the Saints. But, you know, I was pretty loyal to the people that uh, supported me while I was there, and I wanted to start my career there and end it there, and that's what I did. Yeah, and you don't, you do not see that uh, a lot these days. Tell us about the disparity of, like, pay-wise. Back then, uh, a lot of players who played had part-time jobs, you know, off-season. <laughs> You're funny. That, you've done a good job of researching this because – we all had part-time jobs. Yeah, I mean, we 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 played in six exhibition games. They weren't preseason games. That they, they, you know, they were exhibition games, is what they called them. They since named them preseason, but at an average of twenty-eight dollars a day, I signed as a six-round draft, six first-round draft pick in the sixth round for ten thousand dollars, twenty-three thousand, twenty-six thousand, twenty-eight thousand over a three-year period. Wow! I used to sign. I used to sign my checks at Seven Eleven. Oh my goodness! Yeah, I, and now yeah. the people are making that you know per half or per quarter. Yeah. Well, yeah, per game. Yeah, per game. I mean, it's a, some some of what these guys are making these days. It's in it's insanity. Yeah. And um, I, I, how do you feel? Playing in what I, I consider to be, you know, uh, the golden era, really, of football, there, there were so many good players back then. And the game was still, you know, it, it was hitting its stride in as far as uh, popularity in America. It was really taking off. Uh, you had uh, lots of uh, lots of interest. And but yet it was still kind of uh, still kind of naive in the business end of the game. And then you look at it now where it's just just huge worldwide you know behemoth and i'm just curious you know playing back then was do you think you guys had more fun there was a, there wasn't as much pressure on you know like contracts and stuff or you know did you feel ripped do you feel ripped off for not getting the part of that cash no i don't feel ripped off i think it's great i congratulate the players today to play and make the kind of dollars they they made they, they're making them on the backs of of the players like me who helped save the league and the league's merged back when I signed with the Broncos and the game, the game became a lot bigger. 
I don't uh, begrudge those guys for getting the kind of dollars they're getting. I mean, they've earned it. I mean, it's a it's a tough sport. Life expectancy today is like three and a half years, and uh, they need to get all they can get while they can get it because they don't care about you when you're done. I mean, you know, most of our players who live beyond 55, their quality of life is not that great. Uh, you know, all the call of the concussions they've had, and they didn't make a lot of money. I, I mean, we didn't make a lot of money, and we all, like you said, we all had off-season jobs, but that was a part of the thing back then. And even today, the average player don't make the kind of dollars that everybody thinks. They look at the, the players who are making the millions and think all the players are making a million. They're not. Those are only the key players, you know, the quality top offensive linemen, quarterbacks, running backs, receivers. But, you know, the overall player, average player, the backup guys, they don't make the kind of money. I think they're. I think you know. I mean, at two hundred eighty thousand minimum is is still pretty good. But, but you know, when you go through what they go through to earn that much, it's it's you know. Yeah, they're I sacrificing mean, a lot to to earn yeah. that amount for a short time. Actually, yeah, uh, I want yeah. I wanted to ask you about. I was uh, I was looking at some uh, some clips, some old clips from uh, back in the day when you were playing, and um, there was a time when your coach John Ralston had you guys take a psych test and (laughs) (laughs) a very interesting result came about of that. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about you. (laughs) Well, I just want to, just want to digress a minute about, you know, the the first question, the earlier question was about playing in that era. For me, it's great that I played in that era because now as a hall of famer, I, I played against 75% of the current hall of famers today. Absolutely. That's why we so call that, it the golden era. Yeah, that's it was it was, a, it was great. There were great players, and they were different players to, then than they are now. Uh, I think we played for the sport, and we played for our fans, and we played for each other. It wasn't about the money when I played, and that's what makes the era that I played in so great. You know, and that really, really came through, and I believe that's why it resonated so much. Uh, I, I know for myself, growing up, like I said, I grew up in Houston. I was a big Oiler fan. And they, they weren't always great, and there were some really down years there. But the players were accessible. They all seemed to enjoy what they were doing. They enjoyed the fact that people came out and watched them. And they were playing for the just the glory of the game and, and the moment and, and just the fact that people were there to watch it. They seemed appreciative of it. And the fans. I mean, you're right. We'd go into schools, junior high school, high schools. Kids today that are adults and families and our judges and lawyers and doctors are telling me, that uh, I came into their school and talked to them, and I motivated them to be the per- person they are today. So, yeah, we were accessible. We we would see fans after the game. We we go to, to bar mitzvahs and parties in our communities, and you can't you can't get to a play today because the agent won't let you. I mean, the the, <laughs> the players are of course controlled by the agents. They want a fee for you to come show up at a high school, come show up at a basketball game, come show up at. Some function for kids. I just left a big function in Denver this week. Uh, Daniel Graham, who's a tight end for the Broncos, has a camp every year for for preschoolers and high school kids for two days, and I was back part of that. Two days before that, I was in New Mexico for Ty Detmer's fundraiser to raise money in the New Mexico area for a lot of the Native American kids who are, who are dropouts and high alcoholism and high suicide. We're trying to save these kids. That's what the players of my era go out to do. There's unlike no, yeah, no doubt about it. It, it. That is that is such a fact. And I know, I know for a fact that you were involved in many, many, many charitable events. And that's one thing that people just absolutely love about Floyd Little. But let's yeah. let's go back to the uh, let's the, talk the, about John Ralston. Yeah, let's talk about Ralston test. with the psych well, test. <laughs> well, I, yeah, it, it's funny because I uh, we took the test under Lou Saban. Lou Saban started this test taking. It was something that was done in San Diego. Some uh, uh, people, psychologists, did a study on what kinds of personalities played certain positions. And if the coach knew the the psychological makeup of its its players, they can determine what better position they'd be suited for. So John (laughs) Rossi gave John John Rossi gave the test, and you know I took the test and. Yeah, lo and behold, I get a call from uh, from uh, Lou Saban, rather. Lou, get a call from Lou Saban saying he needed to talk to me. And I said, sure. So I go over to the coach's office. He says, I just got the results of your test. I said, really? really? How'd I do? <laughs> he, says, 
He says, you're a homicidal, you're a homicidal maniac. <laughs> he, he said, just like me. <laughs> I, I, I knew I liked you for a reason. Profiles are the same. This, so the next year, you know, when he left, John Ralston comes in. He went of the test. So he wanted to know, you know, a Stanford coach. He wanted to know what he was dealing with. He know, wanted to know what kind of players he had to get to, to, to fulfill his needs to be champion. So he runs the test again. So I'm looking at the same test. I'm going, I took this test before. So I knew all the answers. So the answers I answered before, I answered in the same way. But John Rawson was a different kind of coach than Lou Saban. So John Rawson calls me over to the office after getting the results of the test. And typically he comes around the desk and sit next to you so he don't have anything between him, between us. He sat behind his desk and he says, I got your test to score and I'm your test today and I'm disturbed by the results. I says, How so? <laughs> he said, uh, the test says that you're a homicidal maniac. Do you know what that is? I said, No. He says, Well, you have the ability to kill somebody and not have any feeling. <laughs> I says, oh, Yeah, okay. I'm a homicidal maniac. <laughs> that was so funny. So it was so funny. I I, I never forget that. I, you know, I don't know how you found out about that, but yeah, John gave us the test. And, <laughs> Did he? And, uh, uh, I was a homicidal maniac. It's, it's, uh, well, actually, it's really a linebacker's profile. Yes. Or a person that you drop behind the line, the enemy line, with a shotgun. Right. And it, that's the personality of those kinds of, uh, of people. So I had that personality. I didn't know I had it, but. Uh, Obviously, I, I'm a homicidal man. <laughs> did he walk yeah. softly around you after that? Oh, he did. Oh, he did. He really did. He uh, he uh, he kind of kept kept an eye on me. He didn't want me to go <laughs> off anyway. And I've had some some uh, opportunities in the locker room to display a little bit of my anger. There you go. Yes. The uh, uh, a couple of quick questions. We'll let you go because I, I don't want to. I don't want to waste all your time, Floyd. I really appreciate you being with us today so floyd i'm asking uh, i want to know about the uh, i know you uh you were there in denver during the beginnings and saw the uh, the growth of the fan base and everything for the denver broncos to where uh the, it has become a rabid fan base in denver and they they the whole rocky mountain region loves the broncos and you have spent time in seattle when you were uh you know you have a had a ford dealership here and and you saw the beginning of the seahawks and what has become a rabid fan base in the northwest and i'm wondering if you can give us some of uh your perspective on the comparisons um of the the fan base of both the broncos and the seahawks and do you do you see any any uh any comparisons or is it are they two different entities no, I think they're they're pretty much the same, but different eras, different fans, different expectation. But I think that the fans need to, uh, uh, that the coaches should allow their mature players to be the leader, and they can't allow the press and or the fans to pick who they think should be playing. I mean, the coaches has the best perspective on who's the best players and who's the, the leaders. I mean, you you may not see the leadership ability, leadership quality as a fan or a person from the media. But the players know who they look up to. It's just like Tim Tebow. They talk about he don't have the mechanics. This guy's a winner. He's the guy that they should be playing. The fans are saying that you know they want him, but the media is saying he don't have the the ability to play. I know he can play. I know he'll be a winner. I know he'll be a leader for that football team. And the same with the Seahawks. They got a guy named Matt Hasselblatt, who's a pretty good quarterback, a good leader, got some maturity. The fans want him out, and the media wants him out. You can't win without his leadership. I mean, you can bring new people in. They'll make a lot of mistakes and all that, but you need somebody with some stability and some leadership. I think the fans should stand down and allow Pete Kell to coach his football team and play the best possible players he can pay, play to win. Yeah, I agree, and I think, uh, I, I think and in some ways uh, in sports, because money has become such an issue, that they're so afraid of the fans and the media that they kowtow to them and they instead of just running the show like they think that they that the experts who are there who they've paid to run it let them just run the show exactly but the fans have been known to fire coaches and players <laughs> that and is that, so true that, that wouldn't be happening under my watch you know? <laughs> I mean, if I were running a deal, I'd be running the deal. The fans won't be. Exactly. And, that, and that, well, I think we need a little bit more of the Floyd little attitude back in the NFL. One quick question. One quick question before we let you go, Floyd. And I really appreciate the time. Uh, it's been a long road for a guy born in New Haven, Connecticut, with, the, uh, you know, coming up through 
a certain time in 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 the U.S. history where there were there were definite race problems. And I know uh, I've talked to Warren Moon, and I've talked to several players who have experienced um, racial tensions or bias or so forth. What was the road like for you? Well, it was challenging. I, if you saw the movie The Express uh, just recently with Ernie Davis and Jim Brown and me. Yeah, you, you were in that. I was in that. You would see that how it was way back in the day. We couldn't stay at the same hotels our teammates stayed, and we couldn't eat at the same place. So it was challenging, but, you know, you find a way to get around it. I mean, when I played in the Sugar Bowl, they, we trained out at Pensacola Air Force Base where the Blue Angels trained because we wasn't allowed to go into the city. We weren't allowed into some of the facilities. We weren't allowed on Bourbon Street and Al, and, and, and Al Hurt's uh, joint or Pete Fountain's joint. And uh, coaches didn't want to embarrass us by bringing us into a town where we weren't, we weren't wanted. And what, what uh, would that, what, how would that, what would that be like to roll into a town? You're playing for a, an NFL team and a, a celebrated uh, sport, and you're coming in to entertain or, or play a game, and folks are watching it as entertainment, and you can't even participate in, you know, just some of the the normal aspects of everyday life in in towns. That that had to be really discouraging at some point. Well, well, I mean, if you were born in, into that, that's understanding, and you, you accept it. But I was born in, in, on the East Coast. Right. Everything was, everything was available. Every, everybody was accessible, and, and you could go any place you wanted to. So when you get exposed to that, it's, it's depressing. It's really depressing, but uh, we got through it. And was there somebody who pulled you aside and said, you know, um, you know this is how it is, or this is how it's been, or... Uh, we got to fight back on this. Did you have some mentors in the game at that time? No, we were all shocked because all of us were experiencing it for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he, you know, the guy who uh, who I played with is the executive director of the NBA, Billy Hunter. Yes. He was my uh, mentor at Syracuse. He and Jim Nance, who's no longer with us, and we were down there as a few African-Americans on the team. There's only about five of us, and we tried to go on a camp ride to uh, – one of the fraternity brothers' house for a celebration, and we weren't allowed in the camp. Unbelievable! And unbelievable. I, and that was the first. I, it, was, it was unbelievable. I'll never forget that as long as I live. But uh, but we got through it. We got by it. We learned from it, and uh, we know it do exist. It still does. Yes. But we we uh, we find a way to you know avoid it where we can and address it when we can and do the best we can. Uh, real quick, greatest play you were ever involved in? Your favorite play of all time that uh, Im- that was involved you? Uh, the, the play that saved my job. Uh, you know, Lou Saban fired me for fumbling the ball. <laughs> and uh, I refused to leave the field. I stayed on the field, and uh, Marlon Briscoe was the quarterback at the time, and I told him to throw it as far as he could. He threw it 69 yards. We caught it on the five-yard line. We kicked the field goal to beat Buffalo. There and I got go. my job back. There you go. <laughs> oh, Floyd, so much uh, so much good times that you brought to the NFL, and I really, really appreciate your time with us today. And, um, you know, uh, congratulations so much. I know it's a long time coming, but you have deserved to be in the Hall of Fame, and you're finally there, and we're going to go to Canton. We're going to go see the bust of Floyd Little. And everybody check out floydlittle44.com. Floyd, thank you so much. Oh, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. All right. Very cool talking to Floyd Little. Uh, his stats were truly amazing because I went back and checked out a lot of the um, his teammates and everything back in the day, and he talked through going. He talked about going through all the quarterbacks and everything, but it's true. He had nobody around him, and every team that came into town basically said, "If we stop him, we have a win." And he still ran all. It just imagine if he had been on like a New York team or, you know, back in the day, Baltimore, or any of those powerhouse teams, he would have racked up amazing stats. And so, very cool to catch up with Floyd. It was nice of him to take time out of his drive home (laughs) and and chat with us. So, Floyd Little right there. All right, that's it for uh, this part one. We're going to get on out of here. This is uh, the group that's going to be on the Summer Crush, the Dignitaries with Blogger. See you in part two. (laughs) 